The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech podcast feed. Ready for your weekly tech fix? Want to know how technology sets us free? Well, get ready because here it comes. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, entrepreneur and technophile Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now, here's Brian. Here I am, the golden stallion of the tech world, the Rembrandt of the podcast canvas, the apex of own sauce. I have so many names, uh, but don't call me dad. I don't know if anyone will get that joke, but that's okay. Uh, here for another wonderful episode of Sovereign Tech. Um, I'm actually, this Sovereign Tech is going to be coming out just a little bit early because I am going to be going to the Liberty, New Hampshire Liberty Forum. And this is held by the Free State Project. The Free State Project is something that I am a participant of. I am a participant. And it's going to be a great time if you happen to be there, if you're listening to this on your way up. Uh, you know, come say hi to me. Uh, I'm around, and if you need to see a picture of me, there's plenty of memes around of me on the Sovereign Tech Facebook page um, or on SovereignTech.com, uh, which you can go to now. It's still, it's actually still a little secret. It's still a Tumblr page, but we, fortunately, the producer of the show, the hyper-intelligent and beautiful Stephanie Murphy, uh, set it up so that SovereignTech.com actually goes to... Uh, the Tumblr page. And so now it's just SovereignTech.com. Um, anyway, Liberty Forum is going to be great. A whole bunch of Liberty-loving people getting together in the beautiful Crown Plaza uh, Hotel in, in Nashua. And as uh, my listeners know, I, a, a, a dilettante of the finer things in life, uh, definitely enjoy hanging out in the Crown Plaza in Nashua. Um, so yeah, we got the, we got that we got that out of the way. I'll be at the Liberty Forum. Come check me out if I'm there. Um, let's go ahead and get right into the story, shall we? And the story for this week, you may be wondering what exactly this has to do with being free. And it's kind of a piece. It, this is talking about more of the social end of technology, which we in the last episode we kind of talked about that um, with like there's people that are glad they don't have a smartphone. This kind of follows in the same vein. And this article is from uh, Cyborgology. Uh, it's a blog and it's called Hipsters and Low Tech. I know hipsters. What the hell? Uh, all right, well, let's let's get reading on it. Uh, this is by PJ Ray. Hipsters have been much discussed on the Cyborgology blog. Cyborgology authors have also talked about the fetishization of low-tech slash analog media and devices. As David Paul uh, Strohecker pointed out, these two issues are interrelated. Uh, hipsters, quote-unquote, are at the forefront of movements of nostalgic revivalism. That's an interesting thought. It's nostalgic revivalism. I want to pick up these threads and, and add a small observation. Uh, Nathan Jurgensen and I were discussing why low-tech devices have a seductive quality. Consider the popularity of, for example, fixed-gear bicycles or vintage cameras, such as the Kodak Brownie or the Polaroid PX70, uh, or actually that's the, uh, the SX70, though I think this phenomenon is probably overdetermined in the Freudian sense of having multiple sufficient causes. Uh, I came up with a theory that seems worth further consideration, namely that hipsters' obsession 
with antique devices reflects a desire to escape the complex and highly interdependent socio-technical systems that characterize contemporary society and return to a time in which technology appeared to be something that humans could master and thus use to affirm their individual agency. In short, the fetishization of low-tech is about the illusion of agency. It provides affirmation for the hipster whose identity is defined by the postmodern imperative to be an individual, to be unique. Let's keep reading. We'll, we'll talk about this when it's done. Uh, Sizek is often cited as the philosopher, that's a person, of the hipster or the hipster philosopher. But here I argue that Samuel and Deleuze were the true oracles of hipsterdom. Uh, Simmel, this will all be in the show notes and you can look up these guys and what they're all about. Simmel observed that the individual was a modern phenomenon, that the desire to be different is historically contingent. Deleuze identified this desire to be unique as something rather, you know, as something rather insidious when he described that the mechanisms of social control are being decentralized away from institutions such as prisons, schools, and hospitals, and are now situated within the mass population itself. We, each and all of us, are now the primary mechanisms of social control. We are built to desire what society needs from us and to demand the same from others. Deleuze observes, I hope I'm saying that name right, observes with transparent contempt that young people strangely boast of being motivated. They require no institutional coercion. This shift in the nature of social control is of monumental importance, as Verno, Negri, and others have described, because top-down institutions promote conformity and homogeneity, at least within various social classes, which is appropriate for assembly line workers or retail clerks. However, in a new economic paradigm defined by the activity of software engineers, graphics designers, and the like, meaning today, conformity is anathema to the goal of mass innovation. That is to say, institutional control is counterproductive to a post-Fordist, meaning like Ford, where, you know, everything was uh, um, assembly line made, you know, like the Model T Ford, they all look the same, but they were in black. Kudos. Economy of ideas and innovation, and thus must be replaced with a new system of self-regulation reinforced by mass surveillance. As institutions weaken, individuality and uniqueness are no longer stifled, but instead are promoted as the chief values of hipster culture. Innovation is the result of constant surveillance of, and comparison to, other individuals. So, hipsters are the product of a moment in history where the socio-economic system benefits from and has discovered effective methods to enforce the moral imperative to be unique. The hipster aesthetic reflects on ideology of hyper-individualism, though this individualism is itself paradoxical because it is socially mandated. What they're saying is, is that, okay, they want to be an individual based upon being different from everybody else, but in the fact that they're being different from everybody else, they're not really being an individual because they're basing their choices on what everybody else is doing, uh, you know, on doing the opposite of that. Okay, follow? All right. How does this relate to technology, then? As I have argued in the past, citing Anthony Giddens' bargain of modernity, the complexity of modern technology and the expert system required to produce and operate it threaten our sense of individual agency by continually reinforcing our dependency on others. This experience of just being another component of a technological system and not the master of a tool or device is similarly captured in uh, Jacques Ulel's notion on technological autonomy and actor network theory as derived from Bruno Latour. The structural reality of modernity's complex social, socio-technical systems is at odds with the individualistic ideology uniqueness. Thus, nostalgia for the low-tech, lo-fi analog 
is really nostalgia for a time when technology could be mastered, a time when you could fix your own car or bike, a time when you pop open the back of a camera and intuitively understand how it works, a time when you knew where your food came from and how it was prepared, a time when the circuits and electronic were large enough to be visible and an average person could figure out how to repair, repair, replace, hack, and even build them, at a time when a device was yours to open and when warranties... Uh, end user agreements didn't micromanage how used your own how you used your own property in short the appeal of low tech is it affirms our sense of independence and individuality low tech is also about a form of authenticity as technology has grown more complex manufacturers have tended to mask it with layers of design william gibson noted in the gernsback continuum that uh, quotes the 30s had seen the first generation of American industrial designers. Until the 30s, this is the 1930s, all pencil sharpeners had looked like pencil sharpeners. Your basic Victorian mechanism, perhaps with a uh, curly cue of decorative trim. After the advent of the designers, some pencil sharpeners looked as though they'd been put together in wind tunnels. For the most part, the change was only skin deep. Under the streamlined chrome shell, you'd find the same Victorian mechanism. Perhaps the quintessential example is the marketing of the iPod slash iPhone slash iPad, which asks you to forget altogether the, the technical specifications of the product and instead immerse yourself fully in the magic of the design. As Nathan noted in our conversation, this is, an this is analogous to Marx's concept of fetishization, where the set of human and technical relations required to produce a thing are concealed, and the thing becomes defined only by its superficial characteristics. The hipster low-tech movement seeks to dispel this illusion by returning to things that can be easily understood and laid bare. The hipster low-tech fantasy, quote-unquote the dream of the 1890s, like the Gilded Age, is one of escape from the complex socio-technical systems that, are, that we are highly dependent on but have little control over. It is a fantasy of achieving the most radical expression of individual agency, the opt-out. Now, that's, that is very, very fascinating. I think the first thing I want to say is, uh, A, I'm, I'm really not a hipster but by any means. Um, I always wear triple black. Uh, I shave quite a bit of me. You know, I don't have a beard or anything. Um, I am not a hipster by any means. And I think, I just got to say this, I really, I think that while there may be people that consider themselves hipsters, that this all falls true for. I do think this is um, uh, kind of over, I think it's giving hipsters too much credit as to why they do what they do. Uh, even if it's subconsciously why they do what they do, I, I really think this is, this is just giving them way too much credit. But, you know, this isn't just about hipsters. There's, I think there's a very large movement um, all over the place, not just in, in the, the United States, but all over the world where people want to get back to where, you know, th there's like this distrust, this mass distrust out there or whatever, uh, where they don't want things that are interconnected or inter interdependent and they want things to, you know, be available for them to control. Now we can talk, I mean, 
okay, I agree with the idea that like Apple merely sells you on the point that, you know, you make it individual through various things like you, like the cover you put on, it makes it individual. That's like what William Gibson was saying in this, as he was quoted in this article, um, or that, you know, you can like change the background on the iPad or something like that. You know, that's what makes it individual and you can use your own software, et cetera. All that's what actually makes you an individual. Um, and you know, and that like the idea that somehow that's superficial, you're not an individual as in you have control of your own surroundings and your own ways of communicating and things like that. But I, I do think that's kind of a false dichotomy because, you know, you can communicate, you like you can use, take smartphones. Okay. You can use smartphones to communicate and you choose whether or not to communicate. That's the true test of individuality is whether or not you use it or not. Now that's kind of what they're saying in that the, the you know, the ultimate statement of individuality is like the opt-out um i'm reminded of the movie uh with robin williams uh, dead poet society where there's a character named charlie who the, the the teacher robin williams as a teacher tells everybody okay everybody walk around you know and you know just walk around walk your own way and then charlie says you know charlie doesn't start walking and so robin williams says to charlie you know what are you doing you know, aren't you going to walk? And Charlie says, no, I'm actually exercising my right not to walk. And then the, and then Robin Williams says, thank you. You just proved the point. And so there's something to that, whether that, you know, maybe someone came up with a conscious decision. Yeah, I want to do that. I mean, I love that. I, I love that movie. And, and I totally agree with Charlie's sentiment that, you know, I'm choosing not to, um, you know, but I really, I don't think that the bulk of the hipsters in the world have really thought that out. I think, I think they're definitely what they definitely are doing. What a, what a lot of people think are doing is they do want that expression of individuality, and you know, and and it usually is a straight up inspiration of individuality. And and when someone, I think, when someone sees somebody being truly individual, then they get you know they, they that person wants is inspired and says, "Wow, this guy's really an individual. I want to be like him." And then the idea is, well, then you just lost your individuality because you're trying to be like somebody else and not yourself. Um, I mean, that, that, you know, that's all really like far out stuff. And I think people do should, or, you know, I, I think it's in, it's in a person's best interest, um, to do a lot of like self analyzation, uh, you know, do some self empathy. I've talked about before, like, like internal family systems, which is self therapy, you know, IFS and, and look into themselves and okay, why am I doing what I'm doing? Things like that. And I think all that, you know, that's great. That that's, that's how to, that's to find your true individuality. Um, but there's nothing wrong with making a statement as a group, you know, you're all individuals, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with making a statement as, as a group. And anyway, but to touch on another subject, sorry, see, this article just goes all over the place and I feel like I'm going all over the place with it, but to touch on on something else with this whole idea of you can't, you shouldn't like their idea is the hipster idea is, is that you shouldn't trust technology that you can't control, take apart and do what you want. I disagree. I do want control to a certain degree and somebody will always offer that. Okay. Like iPhones don't allow you to get, you know, most Apple products, even more so now do not allow you to have total 100% control of your product that you buy, be it an iPad, uh, an iMac or what. I mean, you can jailbreak them, you can do this and that, but, but they're increasingly make it, making it more difficult so that you cannot control what exactly you do with your device. Um, you know, but then you have the Android, which 
lets you control everything, you know, right down to where it's, where it's dangerous because it's so open, you know, it's open source, um, or, and you might do what's called rooting where you have access to, to the literal, the bare bones of, of the kernel of the device. Um, you know, to, you, I mean, you can have so much control over it that it's almost dangerous that someone else could control it. That's how wide open it is. So these abilities, I don't think that that's ever going to go away. Someone will always, I mean, I agree, and I think it's great. You know, the idea that Android, like, that you can root your phone. You go online, and you look it up, and you figure out how to root your phone uh, because someone else did it. Someone else wanted that. And that that kind of person's always going to be there. That kind of curiosity is always going to be there. That doesn't make someone a hipster, okay? And that doesn't mean that they don't want to take advantage, you know, of something that they can't have complete control over, and, and, and you just, you can't. You know, I mean, that's great, like with an Android that that you can control it right down to the, you know, nook and, you know, nook and cranny. But I mean, if you do something that another company doesn't like, if Facebook doesn't like your settings that you made on your Android, you're not going to be able to use Facebook. And so there's that trade off. I think the real expression of an individual, you know, is their ideas. They don't know. Okay. Now, this is an intellectual property. I'm just saying your real expression are your thoughts, your ideas things like that. Technology is just a, all it is, is a tool for connection and to not want that interconnectedness. I find, you know, I like to be alone as much as anybody, you know, at times, but to not want that like interconnectedness or to have that ease of, of, of inter of connecting with other people, um, especially in, in a world that, you know, may not always be so kind to individuality, it seems. Um, and maybe that's why hipsters are, you know, so adamant on being hipsters. But, you know, I, I really, like, I question that. And, and, and to want, like, this, this kind of gets into the steampunk thing where we need to make it so that we can control it and, but still do what we do modernly. Um, I think that's what that can create. You know, this is, this goes into like division of labor. You want other people to know how to do this so that you can think about other things. That's what I'm saying. That, that's, that's the point I'm getting to is that this whole idea that you have to be, you know, a jack of all trades at all, you know, at all times and that you have to, I mean, I, you know, I like, I'd love to, I'm not going to say I consider myself this, but I would love for history to remember me as a polymath, which means that, you know, I'm good at a whole lot of things. I'd love to have, to have the reputation of uh of Eratosthenes who was known as Eratosthenes was a was a Greek um scientist philosopher a whole bunch of things way back when you know in the uh 2nd century BCE um Eratosthenes was called beta because he was the second best at everything now, I'd love to have that reputation but at the same time I enjoy the division of labor that I don't have to go milk cows you know or do whatever it takes to have some cheese because I love cheese. I don't, you know, I have no desire for any of that. I have no desire to build my own house, not by myself. I'm willing to pay someone to build my house. I've had that done in the past, but I'm not willing. I don't, I have, I don't want to pick up a hammer and nail. That doesn't mean I can't do it. I can, but I'm just saying I, 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 it's fine with me if that never occurs. So my concern is, is that there's this mentality that we have to be able to control everything we have. And in so doing, we waste so much time not connecting with ourselves, with our own mind, and not connecting with other people because we're just so busy, you know, trying to like figure every little technological, technological, you know, thing out. 
And, you know, and, and as another example with Apple, this is part of what makes Apple so great. Everything with Apple just works. It just works and people connect with each other. And that's why they want iPhones. That's why they want iPads because they want to connect. You know, they use FaceTime or whatever it is, or even like they use the incredible program GarageBand so that they can make music so that they can connect, you know, with, with their own feelings, what's inside with music and, and share it with everybody very easily. And that's a beautiful thing to want to go back to a time where you spend 75% of your day doing things just to exist, you know, just so that you can subsist and live. Uh, you know, I, I have myself, I have no interest in that because I want to be in the world where when I wake up, you know, the only thing I do in life is get dressed quick, you know, where, when I wake up, it's time to connect with people or it's time to connect with myself and not be thinking, well, better go milk the cow or, uh, I better go develop, uh, I got, I got to go to the dark room and develop all these pictures, you know, using my Kodak. Um, you know, it's a beautiful world we're living in. And so, I mean, the whole point that this article is making is that somehow, you know, these hipsters, they want to go back to the time when the individual had true control. But quite frankly, I think the individual has true control now more so than they've ever had, because now they can, they have more time. The ability, time is the most important thing. Money, money's great, but forget it. If you could spend a million dollars to add 200 years to your life, you'd do it. You'd do it in a second. Because in that time, you could make another 200, another million dollars in 200 years. So, again, to want to go back, you know, I, I get the appeal. I mean, there's like, like I miss, I miss my Radio Shack. I miss Radio Shack. Radio Shack used to have components and all that stuff, you know, to make like transistor radios and things like that. And I used to have so much fun. I'd build my own like little solar kits and all this stuff when I was a kid. It was a whole, it was a ton of fun. But now, you know, <laughs> there's stuff that's 10 times better. And now we can work on making, you know, society better the world better. We can, we can work on making all this stuff better and we can do it through the division of labor where this person over here can go work on the solar panels. And then I can go work on the podcast to tell everybody, Hey, that solar panel is awesome. Do you get what I'm saying? You know, like I said, I'd love, you know, I think it's a great idea to, to, you know, one of my, when I was a kid, one of the things I wanted to do, one of my, my axioms that I made for myself was learn all that is learnable. And so I do want to know, you know, as much as I can, but at the same time, I need the free to be able to learn so much. This is kind of the paradox, I guess, with hipsters to be able to learn so much. I have to have time. And if I'm spending all that time developing photos or like replacing vacuum tubes or something, I don't have the time. I think there's more points I wanted to make on this, but uh, but I think it's a pretty good introduction. I'm sure other articles like it will come our way. So we'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. This is Brian Sovereign. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with me, Brian Sovereign, the man who always wears triple black. Sovereign Tech is a show about science and technology and how it can set you free. 
Remember, Sovereign Tech only endorses businesses and products that we genuinely believe in and support ourselves. If you have a product or website that you would like to have reviewed, you can email the show at SovereignTech at Hush.ai. Please keep in mind that the reviews on Sovereign Tech pull no punches. Thanks for listening. Tech Roulette. Want to play? It is time for Tech Roulette, where I choose a story that gets submitted to me through whatever various ways, be it the Facebook page, the Sovereign Tech Belnea on Google+, Tumblr, or through the email address SovereignTech at Hush.ai. Um, and we'll be doing more with that email address later. But this story, this comes from uh, from two very unfortunate sources, those being Infowars.com and LouRockwell.com. Um, but anyway, I won't go into why those are unfortunate. But the story is Captain Kirk's predecessor, Star Trek, was a Rand Corporation predictive programming, or was Rand Corporation predictive programming. This is by Jurian Mason. Um, okay, real quick, the Rand Corporation is this like think tank that came out of World War II that tries to, you know, it, it's a think tank for government policies and things like that. International think tank, by the way, and. What, what they're saying is, is then there's predictive programming. Now, what predictive programming is, is that you, like, through entertainment, um, you know, th- ideas get pushed on you that aren't true yet or aren't so yet, but it's getting you ready for those conditions. Okay, like an example would be, okay, s- say someone was actually doing predictive programming. That's kind of conspiratorial. But let's say predictive programming was being done. Um, all, like, a lot of the modern movies that are pushing, like, the destruction or zombies and all this stuff is to get you ready for, you know, that the government's actually going to unleash disease and create zombies. And it's getting you, it's predictively programming you to be ready for that time and what to do and, like, maybe desensitize you for it. Not saying that that's happening, that that's going to happen, or that it's true. I'm just giving you an example. Anyway, we'll read the story here. In a rare and recently unearthed interview from 1965, the actor, remember Star Trek, that's when that came out, the actor who preceded William Shatner as first captain of the Enterprise stated that the series was based on the Rand Corporation's, quote-unquote, projects of things to come. Uh, this would be Captain Pike from the original pilot of Star Trek that actually came out before the, the William Shatner version. Uh, actor Jeffrey Hunter, who played Captain Christopher Pike in the Star Trek pilot The Cage, told a Hollywood columnist in January of 65 that he hoped the pilot episode would be picked up as a series because he was intrigued by the fact that the series was based on the Rand's Corp- Rand Corporation's project of things to come. We should know within several weeks whether the show has been sold, Hunter stated almost half a century ago. It will be an hour long, in color, with a regular cast of half a dozen or so, and an important guest star each week, he stated, hopefully. The things that intrigues me the most, Hunter said, is that it is actually based on the Rand Corporation's project of things to come. Except for the fictional characters, it will be like getting a look into the future, and some of the predictions will surely come true in our lifetime. TrekWeb, the first Star Trek website ever to appear on the internet, on the internet, republished part of the recently discovered interview with Hunter in the context of celebrations around the historic pilot episode, considered by many Trekkies, those are Star Trek fans, to be the blueprint of the entire Star Trek project. As TrekWeb notes, the character of Captain Pike remains a popular character with Trek fans. All true, I'm a huge fan of Christopher of Captain Pike, and I actually I like the original Star Trek. Star Trek actually had two pilot episodes. The first one failed. The network NBC didn't want to pick it up, 
And so then they made a second one with William Shatner. That's what this is all referencing is the pre the, the original one. And actually I love that episode. Uh, it's very, it's a very deadly serious. It's not like that campy. Not that I'm, I love Star Trek and, and I think camp is great. I'm just saying that it's, it's a far more serious uh, tone of an episode. So anyway, so for them to say that the Captain Pike is still popular, absolutely true. I'm a huge fan. Um, according to one Star Trek dedicated website, the involvement of the Rand Corporation in the series was limited to technical advice by Rand researcher Harvey P. Harvey P. Lynn Jr. As Trek Place points out, Lynn provided Star Trek's original series creator Gene Roddenberry with scientific and technical advice during pre-production of the series. According to Lynn's son, Harvey P. Lynn Jr. died in 1987. In response to a question from Trek Place's Greg Tyler in 2002, his father worked at Rand as a liaison officer between Rand and Project Air Force. In Rand's own fact, the question whether a Rand researcher designed the initial bridge of the Enterprise is irritatingly answered with the statement that Harvey Lynn was indeed consulted, but as a private citizen, not as a part of the Rand Project. Okay, so they're saying, so this the claim is, is that actually, no, he wasn't part of the Rand Project, even though he worked for the Rand Project. But in his in his you know, interactions with Star Trek wasn't, they're claiming it wasn't part of Rand, but then, well, but yeah, but he wasn't Rand, so it probably was. Um, this is clearly at odds with the spontaneous statement made by Hunter, namely that the entire Star Trek series was based on Rand's project of things to come. Furthermore, 2002 CNBC MSNBC article titled is Star Trek in our future noted that Lynn was not merely consulting on the pilot episode of the series, but was intimately involved in the creation of several aspects of Star Trek, which have become part of our cultural nomenclature. The article also expands on the relationship between the series creator, Gene Roddenberry and liaison officer, Harvey P. Lynn Jr. Lynn, it turns out, was an invaluable resource. He had been referred to Gene through Colonel Donald I. Prickett, an old Air Force buddy from his days as a pilot during World War II. Gene Roddenberry was a pilot. I'm going to forward a copy of Star Trek to a physicist at Rand, Prickett wrote Gene, after he had read an early summary of the series. He's a retired AF type, and I can count on him to keep it to himself. He is a creative, scientific thinker, and will appreciate your concepts. Despite... Uh, Rand's own statements that Lynn was consulted as a private citizen. The article goes on to say that at first Lynn worked informally on the series. Later, he was paid a whopping $50 per show for the use of his brain and expertise. He contributed indispensable insights that helped shape ideas like the ship's computer. Uh, he suggested that it talk in a woman's voice. The sick bay. He suggested that beds be outfitted, outfitted with electrical pickups that monitor the body and teleportation. Now, real quick, that's an interesting point because when you look at the hospital beds from 1965, on Star Trek or 67 the, the show went from 67 to like 69 in its official run uh, the original pilot was in 65 there you know <laughs> the, those those sick bay beds look exactly like like hospital beds do now so there's some truth to that because that was that was not normal back then that was far out stuff and now it's rather normal anyway we'll go we'll go on uh, predictive programming is a way to introduce certain possible technologies uh, as an aspect of highlighted in great detail by researcher Alan Watt. Watt, naively described on Wikipedia as a conspiracy theorist, is the first to accurately and thoroughly communicate the concept of predictive programming, a subtle form of psychological conditioning provided by the media to acquaint the public with planned societal changes to be implemented by our leaders. If and when these changes are put through, the public will be already be familiarized with them and will accept them as natural progressions, thus lessening any possible public resistance and commotion. So he's saying that, look, this stuff will just look normal, so they'll accept it. It's okay. Um, as if we're dogs. 
Societal changes can range from premonitions of possible technologies to desired political and or economic objectives. One might say that Star Trek is a predictive programming parade, as anyone who studies the series finds an abundance of examples. On the technological aspects foreshadowed in Star Trek, the following, or they, they have a movie clip there, you can check that out if you want. So a lot, a lot there. We we can finish up a bit here. Uh, Harvey Lynn's role as a technologist is only part of the story. Notions such as world government and a federation of planets are, of course, embedded within the series. As Gene Roddenberry's vision was oriented towards a global society striving for peace. Of course, to get his project launched, Roddenberry had to tolerate certain alterations and adjustments on his on the insistence of his benefactors. In retrospect, it's perfectly understandable that intelligence agencies had a more than average interest in the series. What better way to gradually introduce people to the concept of world government as a natural step in the evolution of things than through science fiction? After all, the genre provides screenwriters a key to imaginative Valhalla, at the same time allowing Rand's social engineers the perfect format for weaving its desired world government patterns into. Uh, as Daniel Brandt wrote in his article, Philanthropists at War, the interlocking system of foundations and think tanks after World War II were part of the push by central banks to establish by stealth a one-world government. And this global system of control, as Carol Quigley brought to light in his Tragedy and Hope, would not be some idealized let's-all-come-together-in-peace sort of political utopia. Rather, this thousand-headed creature was forced into being and controlled by the major central banks on the planet acting in concert. Quigley, by the way, described the Rand Corporation as a private research and development firm under contract to the United States Air Force. Brand wrote, covert foreign policy became the standard mode of operation after World War II, which was also when Ford Foundation became a major player for the first time. The Institute most, most involved in classified research was Rand Corporation. Um, the involvement of Rand in Star Trek is presumably far from an isolated experiment. In a July 26, 2011 article by Daniel Taylor of Old Thinker News, the author writes about a trailer for the video game uh, Day X Human Revolution, which promotes transhumanism, and getting the people ready for a transhumanist future in which man merges with machine. Taylor points to a report prepared by Rand for the National, National Intelligence Council titled The Global Technology Revolution. In this 2001 report, these themes are outlined as possibilities. These possibilities then magically find their way into fictional formats, such as movies and video games. Being sort of a Star Trek fan myself, it is not with pleasure that I'm writing about these matters, but it's exactly the familiar lust to escape from the present and trade into some idealized vision of the future society, which the elite adds to its arsenal to get the public to go along with its banker-controlled world government, albeit under the guise of a benevolent one. Okay, now there's here, okay, that's it. That that's the story. You can leave, it'll be in the show notes. You can check it out if you want. Just to touch on that last bit, that it's a banker-controlled society. But here's the funny thing: is that Star Trek apparently doesn't use money. So if it's a banker-controlled society, it's controlled by banks. There's no banks in Star Trek. So that's a problem. Now, you can say, okay, well, yeah, but in the original series, there was money, and it wasn't until later on that there wasn't, and then they added it back in with Ferengi and Deep Space Nine and all that stuff. Believe me, I, I am a Trekkie of Trekkies. I, I, I name episodes. I, I know my stuff. Um, so I'm not talking from a position of ignorance. Equally, I know my conspiracies probably as well as I know Star Trek, maybe not as well as I know Star Trek. Um, so I do consider you know that I'm, that I'm coming from a pretty good position of knowledge on this. And, you know, predictive programming, I mean, you can say it, it makes sense that someone would come up with that, um, you know, to make things look normal. And thus when, you know, this is like what they say with, you know, violent video games and all this stuff is that it's desensitizing people to where death is a usual, a normal occurrence. 
Um, and you know, I don't, I'm not really sure where I stand on the idea that I do think predictive programming is like something that people do. Okay. And that it's like something marketers consider and stuff like that, how well it works. I can't really say. Um, and so, you know, it, it's neither here nor there, uh, in, in my opinion and, and equally the examples given here now, the funny thing is there, there's a there's a documentary called how William Shatner made the world and well what it's about is is how Star Trek predicted the future in a lot of ways and it's true that it did but okay here's the funny thing so like so some guys saw supposedly the government is pushing all this but like let's take the cell phone that that's the one a lot of people run to is that cell phones look like communicators from the original series like the flip phones where it flips up and you talk Okay, the, the guy that actually designed the modern-day cell phone got the idea from Star Trek. So if making a communicator was like a push to create this, you know, to, to, to get people to believe in this new future that's controlled by the elite, then, but, but the government didn't build cell phones. This other guy did that got the idea from Star Trek. So how, how is that predictive program? Do you get what I'm saying? Do you get the argument that I'm making here? Um... You know, th there's a lot of other things like, okay, if it was predictive programming, um, then, you know, the elites don't consider women to be, you know, equal, apparently, you know, that's, that's some claims about these elites. And that, you know, that's, that's the whole angle of this article that I don't like is that there's, uh, you know, that, that it has this like heavy conspiracy bent, but anyway, let's say it's so, you know, that there's these elites. Well, the elites generally don't like women, or at least they consider them lesser. And yet in the original pilot that it's claimed that the Rand corporation were involved in the second in command of the entire starship was a woman, you know, and, and the government wasn't pushing for like, you know, women's rights were still kind of a problem back in the sixties. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, equally, you know, if, if, if the, the, if the elites, you know, the, these, these evil people, uh, you know, that, that are like Satanists and all this stuff. Well, one of the, the this article doesn't talk about it, but again, as I, someone who knows a ton about Star Trek, one of the original ideas of the, for the show was that there was supposed to be a preacher on board. And, you know, if they're Satanists, why would they want to, why would they want a, a pastor on the starship? So there's a lot of holes here. There's a whole lot of holes. Like, I mean, to, to make this claim that somehow Star Trek was like gearing us up for a world government, that's a bit of a mess. And equally, in fact, in, in Star Trek, especially in the original series, um, it wasn't until Star Trek, the motion picture that the, the United Federation of Planets was like finalized as like the name or even as the idea. Um, there's episodes in the back, like Return of Tomorrow, uh, where, you know, Captain Kirk actually called, he doesn't call it the United Federation of Planets. He doesn't even call it Starfleet. He calls it like the United Earth uh, operation or, you know, it, bottom line is, is that there's no other planets involved. He's clearly saying it's based out of Earth. So like this idea, you know, of a Federation of Planets or whatever wasn't even solid. So if they were pushing like a, a, a you know, an exacting um, idea, they didn't have it formulated, you know, not until eons later. And now you can say that Star Trek, the motion picture, which was kind of the return in, in 1979 after the success of Star Wars in 77, you can say that that, that was the first movie and that kind of brought Star Trek back, you know, after getting canceled after three years in the sixties. Um, you can say that that has a very transhumanist push and a lot of transhumanist beliefs. You can say that it also has a lot of, uh, 
you know, like Illuminati symbolism in the movie and things like that, all of which I would grant you. I would say, yes, that is true, that all of that is there. Um, but everybody hates Star Trek, the motion picture, except for me. That's my favorite one. Uh, and that's because unlike any other, see, see, here's the funny thing with Star Trek. Star Trek always talks about, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we're peaceful, 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 yay, peace. And yet they're always shooting somebody. Or they're always blowing up something, you know, some star, some other, you know, alien craft or, or whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, that's kind of a contradiction. You're not very peaceful at all. You, you say peace, um, but then you're not. Now, that's a that's actually an efficient allegory of governments, including what would be a world government. But the nice thing about Star Trek, the motion picture is that the Enterprise never shoots, never fires a shot. Um and, you know, nobody, nobody, like you see a phaser, but no one ever really draws it. I mean, there's a couple security guards that draw one, but no one ever fires it. You know, so what I like about it, what, what I like about that movie is that it's actually, it's consistent in its message that, yes, we are a peaceful organization and they handled everything peacefully and they thought it out and they, they went for mental. But that's why everybody hates it because it's quote unquote boring because there's no action because everything's being done in discussion and a mentality. But that's, again, what I think is great. So, so there's a major gap here that somehow this is, you know, again, that Star Trek was prepping us for, you know, um, uh, you know, for a world government and for all this stuff. And, and equally, if it was meant to, it failed. I mean, it totally failed. Uh, you know, it, it may, you know, this article doesn't say it, but I think there's a lot of people, there was actually, there was a show or a movie that was going to be made, uh, a few years ago. This was in the late nineties that was going to be about Gene Roddenberry's life. But what it was, what the story for the, for it was, is that aliens came down like this. I think they call it the nine or something. And this is actually a real theory that, that like, you know, Jimmy Carter talks to the nine and, and whatever. But anyway, you know, aliens come down and, and tell, okay, look, Gene, we're going to be, we're going to arrive on earth soon and we need you to prepare the people for this. And so you need to make a show where it shows humans and aliens interacting, interacting with each other. Well, and that, you know, this article doesn't mention that that movie was going to get made. This was back in like 98 when that movie was, was going to start getting developed. So it, you know, so then you can say, well, that lends some credence to the claim because actually a movie that was going to be made about Gene Roddenberry was saying that he was literally doing predictive programming. But again, you know, the future that Star Trek showed everybody was made by normal people who didn't work for the government, who just saw that and they said, oh, that's cool. I want that world. So in that vein, it doesn't make sense to me that, you know, that that somehow that was the government preparing us, you know, for this future. Um, you know, we I could get into one of these times I'm going to do a conspiracy episode where I talk about a, a lot of this stuff and, you know, where's the, where the truth is and then look at it very objectively. I, I like to think that I'm rather good at that. But anyway, I, I think this article is, there may be like some little bit of truth in it, but by and large, I don't see Star Trek as a grand conspiracy for the elites. This is Brian Sovereign and I'll be back with more Sovereign Talk. Are you ready? I've never seen anyone so treated like a, a god in my life. Brian Sovereign as guest co-host tomorrow night, and so that should be a good show. 
on that note, uh, what we, we just added t- Brian Sovereign. Okay, we haven't. Oh, is he good? He's, he's been in the audience. He's, oh, yeah, he's yeah, certainly got opinions on things. Yes. I'm so close to being like God. No one is above me. Okay, absolutely no one. I don't take <laughs> orders from anybody. And uh, I mean that—that's how much closer to God can you get? Is there anything he doesn't do better than everyone else? Oh, that's just his way of talking. He's one of the best. Break it down. Catch Sovereign Tech, the show about technology and how it can set you free with me, Brian Sovereign. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N at SoundCloud.com slash Sovereign Tech. Wow. It's a website of the week. It is time for Website of the Week, where I bring to you what I consider to be, you know, perhaps uh, some of the best stuff to do on the web. And this week I got something great. It's called Safe Shepherd. And it is a website that you go to. And what it is, Safe Safe Shepherd protects your social network uh, and it keeps your data off of creepy people's search engines, you know. Um, And the idea is, is that you go to this website uh, it's at safeshepherd.com. The link will be in the show notes, obviously. And you give it your Twitter information. Again, you have to trust them with the, with your information. But you give them your Twitter information and your Facebook information. And then it searches, like Google and, you know, and other search engines and things. And it finds, okay, you know, where are you listed? Where Where is everything, you know, where is your existence on the internet, etc.? And then you, you give it that information. It shows you exactly what it finds where it like, like if it knows, like it tells you if perhaps through Facebook or Twitter, someone could find out where exactly you live or things like that. And then you just say, delete, get rid of it. And then from there on, it proactively like kind of protects your account. Now you are trusting your information with a third party. Okay. And so, you know, that's the toss up. Do you want the average person to find you or do you want whoever works for this company to find you? Which, quite frankly, you know, that whole argument as far as privacy goes, um, if you don't want a company to know where you are, don't use Facebook, don't use Twitter at all. Okay, because they they openly sell their information to third parties. So my point being is that, you know, and you can read the EULA, the end user license agreement, whatever, you know, the terms and conditions for, for, for Safe Shepherd, and, you know, make sure that it does everything you want. That's fine. But if you use Facebook or Twitter, I highly recommend using this to, you know, just clean up whatever is out there about you on the Internet. Uh, at the moment, it only does Facebook and Twitter. Well, it does LinkedIn and Instagram as well. Um and they're adding more all the time. Uh, there's also like a subscription. So there's like, you can get a premium account for like 14 bucks a month. Um, you know, and it, and it really like, if you go with premium, like it, it's, it's erasing you off the internet. I mean, it's awesome. Uh, there's even like a VIP service where they can get like a lawyer for you. They, they will offer the lawyer for you. And that's like 250 a month expensive. Sure. But it, it you know, how much is your privacy worth to you? You know, and, and it's and it's understandable if, if at times, you know, that you you want some privacy or you're worried someone's like kind of stalking you on the Internet or something, you know, an old an old uh, an old relationship partner of some kind is, is looking into you or something. And, you you know, you just want to disappear or things like that. I think it's well worth it. 
Um, you know, and it's not a company that works for the CIA or something. It's just a private company that does it. They do all the work for you because sometimes you have to like call companies to get your name ripped off of stuff. Uh, like if you're on Spokio.com, if you don't know about Spokio.com, S-P-O-K-E-O.com, check that out. And that actually tells you how much information is about is out there about you on the internet. And if you find out there's just too much, maybe you should go check out Safe Shepherd at SafeShepherd.com and, and get yourself removed, um, you know, as much as possible. I mean, it's just a really, really great free service. And if you really like their free service, obviously go ahead and, you know, hash out the 14 bucks a month, make it, make it a little more proactive and check on things. Um, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, I understand what, when you're like, I don't think you can hide anything, you know, from big governments and intelligence agencies and everything, but maybe you want to hide stuff, you know, from co-workers or run-of-the-mill people. That's cool. Go for it. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. The taint, or anogenital distance, is the area between the anus and the scrotum in males and the anus and the vagina in women. Now, this distance is usually twice as long in men as in women, so guys have a lot more taint than women do. Now, the extra distance is the result of male hormones acting on the fetus while it's still in the womb. Unfortunately, there are environmental pollutants called phthalates, which are byproducts of plastics which can disrupt this part of fetal development and cause the taint to be shorter than it normally should be. Researchers recently found that male infants were 10 times more likely to have a taint that was shorter than average if their moms had a high amount of phthalates in their body. It seems that phthalates have a feminizing effect on boy babies. Another group of researchers has found that adult men whose taint, or anogenital distance, is shorter than normal were more than seven times as likely to have problems with their sperm or with their fertility. In short, size does matter if it's the distance between a guy's anus and his scrotum because this is a part of the body where environmental pollutants can have a feminizing effect on male babies. Unfortunately, we're just beginning to learn how much this matters because there's no fixing it once the problem has been caused. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. listening to sovereign tech it is i brian sovereign with you the rembrandt of the podcasting canvas and all i can say is what what is causing all this that's right new music new section of the show and you were also real quick you were just listening to if you heard in 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 the last break um that is dr paul joanitis now i know you it said with dr paul and, and i'm guessing a lot of my listeners are like what? We're going to hear something from Ron Paul? No. Uh, with any luck, you'll never hear anything from Ron Paul on this show. But anyway, um, that that is Dr. Paul Joanitis, who is a great, great um, sex educator. And his clips, he does that little 90-second podcast all the time, multiple times a week, I think, even. And you will be hearing those on every show, a different one each show. Uh, they're re- really, really great, great stuff. 
So, and now for the new section. The new section is listener email. I'm getting so much email, and please keep it coming. I love it, okay? I'm getting so much email, uh, and some of them are not like submissions of stories for Tech Roulette, but I'm getting email it's like that's asking me a question. And, you know, if you want me to, to just answer it to you personally, and if I have the time, I will gladly answer it just personally. Otherwise, I would like to use it for the show, and I'll keep you perfectly anonymous, but, you know, we can talk about... Um, you know, we can talk about your question on question on the show and everybody can learn from it. And I think that's great. And so this, this email, and again, the email address is sovereign tech at hush.ai S O V R Y N. Again, remember they always spell your name, right? You know, make sure they spell your name, right? That's the only thing that matters. Anyway. Uh, hi, Brian, quick question that I can't find a straight answer to online. I need to protect my PC and my Android device from searches, like if the police come in my house with a warrant and seize them. Uh, any way for a guy who isn't very savvy in tech stuff to do this, like can I buy something? Is my Gmail secure from police? Just trying to keep emails and documents secure. Uh, just started list recently listening to your show. I'm a big fan already. Thanks in advance and keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much for that emailer. And um, there, there's two quick answers that I'm going to give for this. The first one is with your, uh, with your computer, how to protect your computer, um, with your PC. The only recommendation I have is that maybe if you're that concerned, maybe what you can do is a lot of browsers, a lot of web browsers use, um, like, a, a what they call like on internet Explorer, it's called in private. It's a setting, um, other other browsers you know have various names for it but it's all like create like i think on chrome it's called incognito where it doesn't save your passwords doesn't save where you're going things like that as soon as you close the browser you know it, all that information quote unquote disappears now nothing ever like perfectly disappears you know um i will recommend that if you're trying to like just hide documents to look into truecrypt at truecrypt.com i'll link to that in the show notes um but those are a couple things to do for your PC. But I, you know, I got us and, and also you asked about the email. Um, that's interesting because Gmail itself, uh, there was an article out of wired and this is from, uh, actually January 23rd of this year, 2013, where Google tells cops to get warrants for user email and cloud data. Okay. Now here's the thing. Yes. If they have a warrant, and they give it to Google, they go to Google with a warrant and said, let us see it, then Google will allow them to see it. But they won't just give that information up openly, which is pretty cool. You know, I mean, this is kind of them going to bat for you. Kind of. You know. Um, but yeah, Google demand. according to the story on Wired, Google demands probable cause court-issued warrants to divulge the contents of Gmail and other cloud-stored documents to authorities in the United States. A startling revelation Wednesday that runs counter to federal law that does that does not always demand warrants. So you see what I'm saying, how they're going to bat? Because like with the Patriot Act, they can say, no, 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 Google, you show us now. And Google says, no, 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 you come to me with probable cause. Good. Now, you can say, well, I don't believe Google will do that, but... You know, you're asking, you know, the questions being asked, take this for what it's worth. Um, Google requires an ECPA search warrant for contents of Gmail and other services based on the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which prevents unreasonable search and seizure. That's very nice of them. So they they do care about your privacy to some degree. Um, 
so that's something to consider with the Gmail is that, okay, it does, it does take a degree of serious action for, let's say you kept your, you know, your email protected, like you used incognito browsing so that they couldn't just get on your, you know, on your computer, go to your browser and like, and just, you know, type in Gmail and suddenly, you know, your Gmail's open. Um, the, you know, if you've got it set up so that they, you still have to like put in your password or whatever, um, Google will to some degree protect you. And that's more protection than most companies will offer. Uh, as far as email, another great service to use is actually, if, if you notice the email that you sent to sovereign tech at hush.ai, that's hushmail.com and hushmail.com actually will encrypt every email. Uh, you know, it has a whole bunch of security features, um, that you can use and that you may find superior to Gmail, but I use Gmail as well. I love Gmail. It's great. And, you know, so there, there's your trade off on that. Um, as far as your Android device, now this is where it gets interesting because I think that our phones and our tablets are going to come into far more use than any of our, um, you know, than, than any computer will be, especially in the very near future, you know, or even in the far future, these things are going to be far more important and far more private. We're going to want them to be very private, uh, you know, than, than our PCs will. And with that in mind, you, you said specifically Android. I don't know. I can't really speak for iPhone. If someone, you know, if, if I get the email asking me about how to do this with iPhone, you know, go ahead and send me an email at sovereigntech at hush.ai and I'll look into it then. But as far as with Android, there's a great service. Granted, it's a pay service, but I think it's very, very, very well worth it. Um, there's a service called Lookout. Okay, and it's an antivirus and a security system for your for your Android phone. It's two ninety nine a month, and I know at least if you use it with Sprint, they'll just add it to your Sprint bill. It won't be a separate thing that you'll get charged for. They'll just add the two ninety nine to your bill, which is very convenient. And Lookout.com is just loaded with features. First off, it, it's it's the best antivirus I've seen on Android. Not that Android gets a whole lot of like malware or any or spyware in the first place, but this is really good about it. It scans programs before you install them. I mean, it's it's just very top notch as far as that goes. But then the other features it has is it has remote wiping, which means that if say someone took your phone or like the cops took your phone, if you had the chance you know, to, to get to a computer or whatever, you could wipe that phone remotely. Also, if your phone gets taken, it sends out what's called a signal flare. Even if the battery dies, it sends out what's called a signal flare, which allows you, you can go to lookout.com and you can track where your phone is equally after so many attempts at trying to log into your phone. If your phone has a front facing camera, or maybe even if it has a back facing camera, it takes a picture of who's trying to get into your phone. It is an awesome, awesome service. The two ninety nine is worth every single penny. Um, you know, so so those are the options that you you can you could remotely wipe out your phone. Um, on the flip side of all that, a lot of things are going to the cloud, and you know, with with that in mind. Now, if they logged into your phone, if they successfully broke into your phone, then yeah, they'd be able to like access your um, you know whatever your cloud data is. But, um, you know, that's something to consider in the fact that if you did have to wipe your phone, go ahead and do it, especially if everything on you, you know, is online and whichever. And if you're using Android, chances are good that a lot of like the information that they would try to access would be on Google. And then you have Google, at least to some degree, standing up to even the Patriot Act in your defense. 
Um, and you could say, well, why would they do that for me? You know, why, why would they do that? Why not just be good buddy, buddy, you know, cause Google's all part of the CIA, blah, blah, blah. None of which I don't think is accurate at all. Um, but you know, Google knows that, that a lot of it's you, a lot of the people that use it are kind of the, the very well off, the very affluent. And why would they want to tick off the people with the money? Do you get what I'm saying? They, they wouldn't want to. So that's why I think they're willing to kind of go to bat against various governments, or at least the United, the United States government in this case. Um, Google's track record in countries like China is not as, is not as grand, I grant you. Um, but at least in the United States, they have made the official statement that this is what they, you know, this is what they wish to do. Um, so th- those are my recommendations on that. Uh, and again, if you have a question for the new listener email section of the show, uh, you know, sovereign tech at hush.ai. So just in recap, again, we, you can, you can get lookout, lookout mobile security is the full name for your Android device works on tablets, you know, or, uh, uh, or, you know, or your smartphone. And that gives you everything that gives you, you know, like, you know, mal- malware, um, you know, detection, you know, antivirus, uh, it allows you to find your phone. It, it, it even, like we said, you can take a picture of the person trying to access your phone. It does it automatically. It's amazing. Um, and you know, equally it allows you to remotely wipe out everything that's on your phone from your contacts, the whole thing, it, you know, it just makes all that go away. Uh, and we talked about using TrueCrypt, which is not now the, the emailer said, you know, that they're not that tech savvy. TrueCrypt is a very, very simple thing to use. You download the EXE file and it really holds your hand and walks you through the whole thing. Um, it even TrueCrypt equally allows you to create like a double password essentially, because like, say the police said to you, okay, give us the password to your TrueCrypt folder. And you know, you can give them the password to the TrueCrypt folder, but then within that can be another TrueCrypt folder. You get what I'm saying? And, but they don't have to know that, you know what I mean? But they, and, and so then you never actually give them the actual access to your files. Uh, so do, do you follow my line of thinking there? Now, if, if TrueCrypt is, if you do find for some reason that TrueCrypt is a little complex, I definitely recommend taking the time, you know, to really like, you know, learn how to use it because that is, as far as defending things on your PC, as far as taking care of the hiding things on your PC, that is the gold standard uses 256 bit encryption. Um, the FBI did, I think there is at least one case. I want to say it's from 2005 where the FBI were able to finally get into a true crypt folder, but it took them like six months, three to six months, somewhere in that time frame took them forever to do. So like I say, that is the gold standard. It's open source uh, and it works on anything and not just PC. It works on, a, it works in Linux, works on Mac, uh, just a, just a great, great service and donate to them. Um, you know, to TrueCrypt, uh, they, they offer donate, you know, they have a donation section. If you really, if you appreciate what they do, you know, send them a few bucks, buy them a cup of coffee or something. Uh, so, so that's that. And then, like I said, we did show that Google will to some degree, you know, go to, go to bat for you. So again, please send me your emails. You have technical questions. I will try. I mean, I'm not Leo Laporte. The, he has a great radio show where he's the tech guy and like, you can call into the show and he tries and answers your questions and everything. Um, I can't see myself ever doing anything like that. Leo Laporte is just absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, a far, far brighter guy, I think even in the tech world than I am. 
Um, so, you know, I'm not planning on doing anything like that, but I thought this would be a nice section to add in, uh, as well as the new 90 seconds on sex little podcast there on the break with Dr. Paul, uh, Joanitis, which is really, really good. And, uh, you can go to 90 seconds on for that. I'll probably, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be linking to that in the show notes, but you can, t- you know, you can type it in and, and, and you'll find it just, just great stuff. He has a book too, which is really good, which I will tout more in the future as a, uh, once an electronic edition comes out, which he's working on. So yeah, hope you're enjoying, you know, listener email, um, and send it on sovereign tech at hush.ai. Uh, you know, bear in mind, sovereign tech, this is what I do, you know? And, uh, I've gotten a lot of great emails, you know, of people just saying, Hey, wow, listening to your show. Great. I love it. Uh, it's about time that there's a Liberty podcast and all that stuff. And I really appreciate those. Don't hesitate to send those as well. Uh, I have a huge ego and I love to get it fed. So this is Sovereign Tech. I'll be with more. Be right back with more. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity, it is our last, best hope for peace. It is Babylon 5. All fighter squadrons launched. Return fire. Freeze Watch Babylon 5. You can watch Babylon 5 and experience the greatest show in television history. See the entire series completely free by going to the wb.com slash shows slash Babylon 5. Software of the Week. It is time for Software of the Week where I talk about various... uh, software that I enjoy and that I find useful. Um, I generally try to keep the software cross-platform, meaning it works in Linux, Mac, um, or, you know, or, or Windows. Uh, and I also try to keep it open source, you know, and, and free. I also try to keep it free. Sometimes in the future, I, I'm sure I'll be talking about programs that you have to pay for. But uh, at the moment, you know, I, you know, by and large, I try to keep it to where it's something that you can just go and download as you're listening to my voice. My lovely, lovely voice. Anyway, uh, this week is Calibre, if, if that's what it's supposed to be called, or maybe it's Caliber. I've always called it Calibre. Anyway, it's an ebook management program. It does work on everything. And this is amazing what this does. And it's a management tool in that it can, like, like your, your ebook electronic book library collection on your computer, it can keep track of that and kind of like iTunes does for music. But also, whatever device you can connect to it, it recognizes the device, it has drivers for it, and it can actually manage the ebooks on your device. Now, myself, I use the Kindle software uh, as well as a Kindle for, for my ebook stuff. And so I upload everything to Amazon. Like I upload, I, I have hard copy or, you know, I have hard copies. I don't have actually like paper editions, but I have hard copies of most of my books, except for the ones I buy on Kindle, um, on my computer as well. But, you know, I'm just saying that what I do is I actually, I send them up to Amazon, but here's the interesting thing to do that. Amazon uses a, they have a proprietary, um, format for their eBooks. Most eBooks come in what they call EPUB or in a PDF file. And, but 
Amazon uses what's called Mobi. It's dot Mobi, M-O-B-I. And the nice thing is, is that when I download an EPUB file or a PDF file, even usually I'll keep the PDFs alone, but like an EPUB file from somewhere I can with Calibre, I can convert it. This is all for free. I can convert it into a Mobi file and it's perfect conversion. It looks great. Um, because there's a lot of services out there like Google Books, not Google Playbooks, but Google Books that has like, uh, you know, they've scanned a bunch of uh, public domain books, you know, from the past hundreds of years. And there's Project Gutenberg and all that stuff, even though Project Gutenberg usually offers um, native Amazon Mobi files, versions of their books as to where like something like Google Books or some other free ebook uh, providers don't always offer the Mobi format. So this is where Calibre comes in and it's great. And it turns it into, uh, again, it can turn it into a Mobi. It can turn it into all kinds of things. If you want to turn, you know, these EPUBs or Mobi's Mobi files into PDFs, it can do that. Um, it can even take it like, some people do this. They download, uh, their comic books, which, you know, uh, I do that too. Sometimes depending on the comic, um, you can download those and you can convert those are usually what they call a CBR file or a CBZ file, and it can convert those, um, into, you know, into an EPUB or a Mobi or whatever. So, so it's really great. It's a Swiss army knife of conversion as far as books go, as far as eBooks go. And it's just a great, great, uh, you know, great piece of software that's at Calibre, C-A-L-I-B-R-E. And then the website is that Calibre, C-A-L-I-B-R-E dash ebook.com. Obviously I'll link to it in the show notes and you can check it out from there. Um, and again, it works on everything. It works on absolutely everything. I will say this. It is probably of the program that I've never seen another program that updates as much as this one does. And you know, it looks, it's totally free. So, you know, that's fine, but it looks for automatic updates when it opens up. And it seems like almost every time I open it, there's a new version out and I have to go redownload, you know, redownload it. Now you don't have to redownload it. I mean, I've been using it since like version five and I haven't noticed the changes, but anyway, check it out. Calibre, uh, for your ebook management and conversion. It is awesome. This is Brian Sovereign, and I'll be right back. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Brian, stop playing those video games! Uh, 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 just a minute, Mom. Game Talk. It is time for Game Talk, my favorite part of the show, where I talk about one of my favorite things. Games. Not sex. That's definitely ranks higher than games. But this is game talk, not sex talk. Maybe that's, if there's enough demand, maybe I'll do that in the future. Anyway, uh, this is an article. This is from Kotaku, a fantastic. Uh, if you're looking for game news, I mean, this is a place to go. It's really, really good. Um, this story is actually from last year, from December 21st, 2012. And it's about a company called Gameloft, which I actually... I. I think Gameloft makes great games. They mainly make games for like Android and iPhone. 
and I actually play a game called Wild Blood made by Gameloft, and it is a, I mean, just a top-notch game. It uses the Unreal Engine. It's 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 really good stuff. Um, anyway, the story is, and this is by Jason Schreier, partygoer, uh, topless women at Gameloft's holiday party says a lot about the games industry. Oh my, what could this say? Let's get right into it. Last weekend, last weekend's office holiday party at Gameloft Montreal featured one giant circus performance complete with acrobats, stilts, and topless women, according to a few sources. This made at least one attendee rather uncomfortable. I first heard about the party last week after seeing a tweet by Montreal-based game designer Mikhail McBride Charpentier. Uh, and the tweet goes, topless women at the holiday party, uh, didn't you hear, had people eating desserts off their naked bodies. It seems that there were at least a couple of eyebrow-raising Christmas parties in the Montreal scene. While we haven't heard much more about the Warner Brothers one, I've gotten in touch with one attendee at the Gameloft party who spoke to me under condition of anonymity. According to that attendee, there were several women wearing nothing but G-strings and body paint that looked like armor with their boobs showing. When they were done, the girls basically went through the crowd partying, I guess, with people, the attendee told me. They were taking poses so people, you know, could get pictures of them, and they were, quote-unquote, dancing. I'm putting quotes because, to me, it was clear that those girls got paid to make their boobs bounce around, uh, the story says. There were, they, they were jumping around, and then when, when they saw each other, they would make sexy poses and dance together, almost grinding each other. Gameloft is a popular developer publisher of many top mobile games, including Modern Combat and My Little Pony. While we didn't attend the party and haven't seen images from it, we have asked the company for their side of the story. Uh, we'll let you know when you hear back. And there was an update here that Gameloft has responded to our request for comments, telling us that they expelled the topless women from the party. So Gameloft is saying that those women... No, 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 that wasn't our idea. They weren't supposed to be there. Anyway... Um, according to the attendee, some people at the party made comments about how inappropriate it was. Some attendees danced with the topless women. Others tried to ignore them. I have to say, I really was not very comfortable with, with the situation, the attendee said. I did not feel like Gameloft respected the females, female employees there. I feel they were not taken into consideration at all. I could not believe that this idea was given and approved by someone. The attendee went on, I also felt that it was inappropriate. You know, if the social committee organized an activity to a strip club, it would be weird, but at least you would know where you're going. The holiday party, you go there thinking of having a nice time with the people you work with, and you end up with naked girls around you. That is the last thing I was expecting, and I felt it was imposed on me. Uh, I felt quite sad about this, because I know that companies struggle to have girls working for them. At least they say so, but this kind of behavior makes me feel that it's not really true, that they do not really want it that much. I feel that if a company that does that tries to hire me, I will probably decline their offer since to them, women are still objects that are only good to look at. I am pretty sure some girls slash women would think about would, would think about it twice if they heard about something like this. In a male-dominated industry like gaming, where females still often feel uncomfortable or out of place because of their gender, situations like this can just make things worse. I think it's already pretty hard to be taken seriously as a female in this industry, the attendee said. A teacher used to tell me, as a man in the video game industry, you have respect until you lose it. As a woman in the video game industry, you have no respect until you gain it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when a company encourages these kinds of things, how are we supposed to tell men in the company that women working with them are serious, intelligent people? How are we supposed to tell our players 
that the girls playing with them are not only good to look at. On top of that, as a human being, male or female, I think it is just inappropriate. It is a holiday party at work. There are some things that are acceptable in a work environment and some that are not. This is not acceptable. The company would not accept pictures of naked women on the walls. Why would it accept naked women at a Christmas party? That's a great point. Um, You would not see these kinds of things in any other holiday party in any other industry. That part might not be so true. But the point that the company would not accept pictures of naked women on the walls... But they'd have naked women at their Christmas party. That is an interesting uh, concept there. Overall, I was uncomfortable, but also pretty annoyed that some money was actually spent on that when it could have been on something that everyone could enjoy, like more food or magicians. I don't know, something else. I mean, okay, so that's the end of the article. Very, very interesting. And, And here's the unfortunate part is that this is not unique. This this is an expose of the gaming industry, and it's not unique in what it's saying at, at all. Um, it just happens to be a very a very uh, you know recent case. And okay, the whole party was a circus. That's great. You know, if there were you know nude women, I mean, I think nudity is great. Obviously, I mean, people that have listened to the show for a little while, you know how I feel about sex and you know and and just being open and all that stuff. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay, but there weren't any naked men there. Well, why are we, well, I don't want to see a naked, well, what, you know, I mean, just picture that picture some of the, some of the male programmers at this party going, well, I don't want to see naked men. Yeah. But there's women programmers here too. Yeah. No way. I mean, just picture this conversation. No, wait a minute. No, there aren't any women programmers here. Well, gee, no wonder because there's no naked men. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you get what the person's trying to say? Now, I mean, because, you know, the appropriateness thing, eh, whatever, you know, I wish at Gameloft, I, I would be honored if I went to Gameloft and there on their walls, there were naked men and women. But I do feel there should be both, at least if they want to attract, you know, both ends of that spectrum, you know, if they want female programmers and female programmers. Okay, here's the thing I can I can hear just hear people saying it's like, well, we don't need female programmers because most of the game, most gamers are guys. Not true, but most gamers are guys or at least that number's changing. Most gamers are guys, and so I want guys to make the games to appeal to me. Let me tell you, there's a game out there called Analog, a hate story. And it is by a woman, not just a woman, but also an autistic woman. And this game is, check it out. It is amazing. And you know you're getting such a different perspective from someone who A A is a woman and B is autistic. And it is so cool to get something that is that feels so fresh and part of it is because it's not just oh boom boom blow that up boom boom blow that up or jump on you know jump on this platform then jump on this platform you you i mean and and the person made the the article makes the point that game companies are and they are you can look this up on google game companies are saying we want we want women working in our industry Maybe because of games like Analog, a hate story, where they see the incredible uniqueness that they can, that, that sometimes, you know, people that choose these roles, uh, you know, female roles and things like that, you know, that they can bring to the table of an industry. And yet then they pull stunts like this, not making them feel welcome at all. I mean, you know what I compare this to? This is like, and I mean, I'm an atheist. Okay. But that's like saying, Hey, Hey Brian, you know, come work for this company don't mind the crosses everywhere don't mind the fact that you have to go to church you know to even to even work here it's okay you you know just come and work here no i'm an atheist i'm not gonna go and work for that crap do you see the point 
And then the company comes out and says, oh, no, we didn't hire them. Come on. Well, clearly they are around long enough to get a bunch of pictures taken, to be dancing with each other, let alone a bunch of other people. And I'm not even going to get into like the whole idea of, you know, like female armor and video games. That's a, that's for another game talk. But this is nonsense. Make no mistake, I'm not talking about the inappropriateness of the party. I'm talking about living up to the standards that they're setting for themselves. They want women to work for them, and then they want to treat women like they're just objects to be oogled. Make sense? Well, anyway, you can check out the story in the show notes. Let me know what you think. If you disagree, you know, or, or if you have comments on it, please. Sovereign Tech at Hush.ai. They've got a whole section for you now. Listener emails. Let me know what you think. This is Brian Sovereign. I'll be back with more. Are you searching for a mouthwatering, all-natural, sweet and sticky treat? What if I told you it was also made by a chef who believes in freedom, just like you? You're not dreaming. This is real. Head over to mandrik.com. That's M-A-N-D-R-I-K.com. There, you'll find George's famous baklava in classic and dark chocolate flavors. Mm. To those with special health needs, George's famous baklava also has a treat for you. Golden delicious, low-carb, gluten-free almond cookies. Order with PayPal or Bitcoins. In just a few days, your sweet treats will await you right at your doorstep. One more time, that's M-A-N-D-R-I-K dot com for George's Famous Bakaba. Hacker Stories. It is time for Hacker Stories, where we talk about the one, you know, some of the real heroes of society, uh, that society at large, that being hackers, black hat, white hat, gray hat, doesn't matter. I consider them all heroes, uh, and, and absolutely amazing the things they do. Um, this week's hacker story is from February 4th of 2013. And this story in particular is coming from PC advisor, though I originally found out about it from Kotaku, which we were just talking about in the, uh, in the last segment during game talk and what it is it's japan police so this is happening in japan japan police to ally with hackers in tactical shift the new policy comes after an embarrassing hacking case in which several individuals were wrongly arrested what is this all about well what this is about is that japan's most dangerous hacker okay uh was they actually put a there's this guy he has this like really crazy uh reputation um, they're putting out wanted posters for this hacker. So mugshot, let's, let's go into the article quick from, uh, we'll go first from the one from Kotaku and it's, uh, by Brian Ashcraft mugshots, artist sketches, physical descriptions. Those are what you see on typical wanted posters in Japan, but this is not your typical wanted poster. It's not even your typical crime. Instead, this wanted poster features descriptions of programming languages, viruses, and internet use. But like most wanted posters, and you can find this in the show notes, you'll, you'll get you'll get linked to the picture. Uh, this one also has a hefty reward. Uh, the alleged hacker has duped Japanese police since last summer with crimes that include using. See, now, as far as I can tell, the hacker doesn't have they don't even know what like what his name is or anything like that. It's just one guy that they must be following, like his the code that he normally pushes out. And that's what they're putting. See what I'm saying? This is what they're putting on the wanted poster is just like his his M.O., you know, but his M.O. is code. Uh, 
It's not a name. It's not a picture. You get what I'm saying? Okay, the alleged hacker has duped Japanese police since last summer with crimes that include using an animator's computer to send killing spree threats, obviously I don't like that, and another man's computer to forward a bomb threat to Nintendo's headquarters, none of which I appreciate. Okay, Uh, but this was followed by anime character and kitty cat related taunts and puzzles. The hacker has since said there will be no more attacks. Japanese police have have proven woefully ill-equipped to deal with this hacker, which is why several individuals were wrongly accused of making threats and placed in police custody, even though the hacker had allegedly operated their computers remotely. Last December, the country's National Police Agency issued a wanted poster for the hacker, a first for Japan. IDG reports that unlike other wanted posters, this one has details about the hacker's ability to use programming language like C, uh, the IESYS.exe virus, as well as the ability to use a technique called Siberian Post Office to make anonymous posts on Japanese bulletin boards. There is also a reward of 3 million yen. That's in the ballpark of like $32,000 American um, for information that leads to the hacker's capture. Up until now, this type of reward was reserved for cases involving crimes like murder and arson, but the policy has recently been changed to include more types of crimes, said a National Policy Agency spokesperson in December. This month, the agency announced that it would be joining forces with hacking communities to beef up its online task forces. According to PC Advisor, the police also said it will bring on more tech-savvy staffers and is considered sending more officers to universities to study information security and to hopefully prevent embarrassing incidents in the future. Um, okay, now, real quick, I just got to say this. Obviously, the these and their pranks, it's just one hacker talking about killing spree threats and a bomb threat to nintendo i love nintendo i wouldn't want them to get bombed but anyway obviously i don't i don't support you know that that kind of business you know the the, that kind of like sending threats and all that stuff um but this is clearly a very talented hacker and it's interesting now if you listen to uh to pre to a previous episode where there was a story out of stubenville ohio which talked about a, a, a 16-year-old girl that got raped by a football team and how Anonymous, the, the hacker group Anonymous, actually did all the detective work and the journalism to find out what exactly happened. They got videos of the, of the girl getting raped. They got tweets from, um, you know, from various football players that were involved in the rape that, uh, you know, saying that they were having a good time, that they didn't, you know, there wasn't, this was something they were doing, you know, and enjoying. They, they got all this information out. And so now it's interesting. And I made the point in that story that, you know, maybe the police, not that I want police involved in anything or to maybe even exist, but that police should be going to hackers to maybe do some actual police work, to do some actual detective work. That's what this story is kind of bringing to mind. And we'll go to the article here in PC advisor. Um, which says, you know, now they're, they're looking to talk to hackers and now they're talking about sending, uh, you know, police officers to go to, uh, colleges to, you know, learn how, learn how to hack themselves or at least learn how to, how to deal with it. Um, and this is happening all across the world. According to the article, uh, you know, the agency was, has moved to, this is talking about Japan, uh, has moved to strengthen its knowledge and enforcement of online crime in recent months, due in part to the flood of bad publicity as it stumbled in the case last year. Talking more about this in December, the organization offered its first ever reward for a hacker complete with a wanted poster that included details such as the individual's proficiency in C and posting online using anonymous tools. 
and Japan's National Police Agency is similar to organizations like the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States, but its role is more focused on working with and organizing local police forces than independent investigations. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're freaking out. Government doesn't know what to do about hackers. That's the bottom... That, the moral of this whole story is that these people have no I, governments, if it's the United States or if it's Japan or if it's Saudi Arabia, it doesn't matter. These people do not know what to do about hackers. Again, some of the hacks that this hacker, this hacker is unnamed, he's that good. He or she could be a she. Um, is that good, you know, that, that that's not what's left. The only thing they can say is, okay, this is what they usually use if someone fits this MO, modus apprendi, then... You know, this might be the person we're looking for, and if you can find them, you, you get 3 million yen out of the score. Okay, but that's it. They're going to the private sector because the private sector figures out how to do, how, they, they figure out how to do things. Do you see the point? Government, it's so inept. It cannot, it just doesn't know. And I can't believe that there is a wanted poster out for a hacker. A wanted poster. What is this, the Wild West? I mean, wow, you know, and, and, and are most people even, you know, I, I can't speak for Japan, not entirely anyway, but like in the United States, you know, like if I said, oh yeah, this guy does this work in visual C, the average person's going to look at me like, well, what are you talking about? What is visual C? I don't know. Visual C is a programming language. And so what, who, who, do you get what I'm saying? Who, who are they? What are they expecting? Who, who came up with this idea? You know, and why are, you know, with, with all of the cyber crime that goes on, why aren't they asking the question, why are people committing cyber crimes? What's leading to this person? What, what could possibly be the reason? Why would this person want to send a bomb threat to Nintendo? They're not wasting any time. They're, they're not spending any time on those, on those bigger questions, which is where the real answers lie. Instead, they're like, okay, well, let's go hire some of our own hackers to take on these hackers. We'll create a little cyber war. Let's send our police officers to college to learn how to be hackers themselves so that they can battle these things. They're not addressing the root issues here. You know, and, and I don't, you know, this hackers, like I say, is so anonymous, so good at, w at what, what he or she is doing that you know, I mean, we, who knows how much this person's done? There's, there's only been a few things that they've been able to track to him. And, you know, so, so can it, can it even be, you know, completely dealt with? Um, it's obviously it can't be dealt with by the government. And, uh, you know, does, does it, is it even something that needs to be dealt with? I don't know. You know, I, I mean, like I say, the, the death threats are, I, I don't agree with that at all. Um, but, you know, is anybody actually hurt? Not yet. Big questions to ask about this one, though. Anyway, I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. This is Stephanie Murphy, Sovereign Tech Producer. You may know me from this show, but did you know that I have my own podcast? It's called Pork Therapy. 
Pork Therapy is a bit different from other shows. We cover current events, big ideas, and even relationship issues, all through the lens of how we can get more freedom in our lives. Oh, and you'll love Sex and Science Hour. Join me on my website, porktherapy.com. That's P-O-R-C therapy.com. Now back to Sovereign Tech. doing? I can't believe I caught you again. You know, Jesus doesn't approve of this little habit of yours. I know, baby, I know it's wrong, but it feels so right. Well, it ain't. But I've been doing it since I was 12 years old. It's nothing but a sinful perversion of nature, if you ask me. But baby, I don't ever want to stop looking at tech websites, new gadgets, video games, software, or any of that stuff. Well, then I'm leaving. Okay. Bye. Pick of the week. It is time for Pick of the Week, where I talk about whatever is on my little mind. Actually, my mind's not that little. Anyway, uh, it could be software, it could be a book, it could be a movie, it could be an album, could be a show, could be a website, could be could be anything that I that I care to talk about. And this week. I am going to read a poem. It's a poem I wrote, actually. Very short. I, I mean, and actually, it, it doesn't have any rhyme or meter, uh, even though I think those are relatively useless concepts um, to my enjoyment of any poem. Uh, but it, so, you know, I'm not really sure exactly what to call it, but I called it a poem. I just said, well, what the heck? And it's called 2.5 Hours of progress and it is by I Brian Sovereign and I'll just let's read on Thursday September 23rd 2010 Facebook was down for approximately 2.5 hours in that time frame as if out of nowhere suddenly the cure for AIDS was finally discovered the theory of everything was figured out and it turns out that there are actually 12 dimensions, not just 11. Faster than light travel through f- the process of folding space was successfully mathematically plotted. Six some odd billion people suddenly came to the realization that they didn't need governments, they didn't need leaders. Every single religion was questioned by every single person on the planet. Sex was had with reckless abandon and with more orgies being had than at any other point in human history. Yeah. Now, not so much on reckless abandon, but anyway. The singularity was finally successfully postulated. They were just about to make the computer that would make itself the singularity. The cure for cancer was being typed and dot, 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 dot. Then, at 2.33 p.m. Eastern Time... On that fateful Thursday, the notifications, quote-unquote Facebook notifications, began to appear on computer screens again, and all was lost and forgotten, never to be thought of or discovered again. There's the poem. Nice and short. I didn't bore you, I hope. But it has, there's an interesting message. A few days ago, Facebook was actually down, now actually... You know, the, the date that I gave for, for that of Thursday, September 23rd, 2010, was actually 
a time frame where Facebook was down for like half the day. And if you even could get on, um, you know, it, it, like it had all kinds of flaws. It was, it was really, really crazy. And the other day, Facebook, at least at least at my home, Facebook didn't work for like five minutes, maybe longer. And the funny thing was, was that suddenly my Google Plus account was just blowing up tons of notifications on Google Plus. And I thought that was so strange. I'm like, okay, so Facebook's down. So everybody just ran over to Google Plus. Think of that what you will. Um, interestingly, recently also Facebook has been hacked. They didn't tell anybody. So most of the time when like if Facebook ever actually went down, you probably wouldn't notice anymore. I think they've gotten things like so backed up that, uh, you know, that, that you, you're, you'll rarely ever see any kind of, uh, interruption in service, at least not from Facebook itself. It may come from like your ISP or from your DNS or something, you know, that personally that'll affect you in your local area, but not on a worldwide scale, like what happened, uh, you know, in, in September of 2010. But it got me thinking <laughs> in that, you know, I wonder how many people, you know, I love Facebook. I love the, I, and, and we talked about this earlier in the show. I enjoy the interconnectedness that my cell phone provides, that Facebook provides with people that are far away, even with people that are like here. I appreciate that Facebook helped Egypt topple a government. Twitter as well. I appreciate all that stuff, but sometimes I wonder, I hear so many times, I hear so many people, and this is anecdotal, you know, maybe there's some Google research I should have done on this, but, but this is part of my inspiration for writing that little, that little bit, the 2.5 hours of progress. So many people say that, yeah, I was going to get this done, but then I went on Facebook and I got trapped and they were there for like two hours, just, just scrolling up and up and up or getting into some, you know, some debate or something like that. And I love getting into debates or having conversations on Facebook. Please make no mistake. I mean, and I, I post on Facebook almost all day long, um, you know, and often very unique stuff. I, I like to think. And, you know, but, but that's so sad. And I wondered, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm picturing people like just freaking out when Facebook was down for that five minutes, you know, I just pictured everybody scrambling to Google plus, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, what if they put that time and that much like concern, you know, into, you know, like other things. And I don't want to say more productive because I don't think it's that it's only if, if going up and down Facebook all day long, you know, th that's subjective if that's productive for you or not. Okay. But I just, I just kind of like, I, I instantly had this, you know, I imagine this thing where, where, you know, doctors are just spending like their whole time, you know, looking at like waiting for notifications or looking at Facebook or something. And when, you know, when maybe if they had the same fervor for, uh, for, you know, the profession or for the research as they did for Facebook, that they would, you know, they would have already cured cancer and things like that. And I, and, you know, I mean, I realize the whole thing's very sardonic, you know, but it made me wonder. I mean, it was just, it seemed like it, 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 it almost felt like, like I was experiencing people that, oh no, I'm out of crack. I got to go find some Jane. You know what I mean? I just, I got that sense and it, and, it, and I typed it out and you know, 
ironically, I got a, quite a few likes on my Facebook page after I typed it. People were like, 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 you know, and I enjoyed getting all the notifications. So I'm just as criminal. Please make, make no mistake. I'm not, I'm not laying out harsh judgments here. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it, it just, it, it really made me wonder, you know, and, and, and I, I say to myself, you know, I wish, I wish people would like read and, and, and sometimes I think like, instead of like time that, you know, where, where people could have like been reading something instead, they're reading like these quick shots, you know, on Facebook and everything. And, you know, there, there's, there's actually two opposing um, studies on this where some people say that the internet is like making us dumber because it's, it's our attention span is gone. You know, they said the same thing about TV 40 years ago, but that our attention span is gone because we can only take information in, in like two sentences and we can't like actually read an entire book anymore. And that the idea that that exists definitely, you know, played into my mind when writing this. And I wondered about it. I don't know. But then at the same time, there's, you know, there's people who say, actually, our brains are enhanced by the Internet because now when we want to know something, we can know it instantaneously and that we're just learning so fast we're learning more and more and more and more and more, which I think that's great. But, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I wonder if there's something lost. This is all speculation on my part. It's pick of the week. I can talk about whatever I want. But I do wonder if there's something being lost in not reading an entire book anymore. In fact, you know, a, a trend I've noticed with reading with books is that a, a lot of people don't actually write entire books anymore. You know, it wasn't uncommon even 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, that, you know, people would write 600 page opuses. And now they, all they do is, is that they, they'll take a bunch of their blog posts and turn it into a book. They'll like, they'll collect them and they might edit just a little bit so that it kind of flows a little. And, and they'll tell you right in the introduction of the book that this is what they're doing. And it feels disconnected as much as they try to like write in little pieces that make it connected. It, it feels like there's a disconnection. And so I wonder about that, you know, is, is, is something, you know, is, is there something going on here? Are people getting dumber? I don't think so. And in general, in general, I think things like Facebook are spreading ideas fabulously, you know, and, and, and people are learning so much. They're learning about freedom. They're learning about anarchy. They're learning about atheism. Um, you know, in fact, I mean, so many people, including the producer of the show, uh, have said in the past that if it wasn't for the internet, you know, and the connectedness that it, that allowed of ideas that, you know, that's what brought them to atheism and that's what brought them to liberty. You know, so I wouldn't dream of removing that, you know, I just thought it was just so funny that the sudden seismic shift, you know, and, and in fact, you know, I, this is something I used to think it was hilarious the, when the power would go out, when I'd be back home and, uh, when I used to live in New York and the power would go out and everybody would be so bored. I'd break out a book and a candle, you know? And which isn't far off from what I do in the first place anyway. But it just seems so weird that like everybody was so bored and that, you know, they, do you get what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not formula. I don't, I don't know that I'm really formulating all this very well, but again, I just thought it was so strange that, that instead of people going off and doing something else, they just ran to the next social media. And, you know, I wonder if there's something to that. 
if you have thoughts on it, you know, send me an email, sovereigntech at hush.ai. Um, you know, and then let me know what you think. But uh, anyway, if you're listening to this on your way to the Liberty Forum, that's great. I hope to see you there. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Liberty Forum. It's a great, great time. Uh, a great group of all kinds of people. There's minarchists there. There's anarchists there. There's voluntarists, which apparently that's, to, to some people's mind, that's actually something different. Uh, okay. Um, you know, and there's going to be great speakers there. Uh, I don't know if Sovereign Tech's going to be doing anything there. If so, then when you look at the feed or you go to the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash Sovereign Tech, um, then you'll see it there probably next week. So we also have, um, I've been I've been teasing the privatized space special, and I'm just spreading, I'm spreading a lot of this out. I actually got a couple emails where people are like, uh, well, you know, I want I want to listen to all of this, but you know, you know, take it easy on me and everything. And so I'm going to slow it down a little bit. You know, the specials we're going to space them out a lot more. And I mean, there's a lot of great content. And you know, if you notice with Sovereign Tech, it actually has, um, uh, you know, for for the episode numbers, there's 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 four digits. And yeah, I'm I'm looking to go as far as I can go. You know, nine 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 nine. Let's do it. So Sovereign Tech's going to be, you know, it's in for the long haul, and it's not a flash in the pan. I also have to say that we are now on LRN.FM. Big thanks to Ian Freeman for setting up LRN.FM in the first place, but then to have Sovereign Tech on there, uh, I am definitely honored. There's uh, so many great shows that get played on LRN.FM. You know, Pork Therapy, uh, School Sucks. I mean, there's, there's just, there's a litany. There's, there's so many. And, 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 and that's a great, great honor. So anyway, hope you enjoyed the show as usual. And, uh, you know, hopefully the audience will, will grow even more as, as, you know, these start to get plays on LRN.FM. And again, we now have the brand new listener email section. So send me an email, sovereigntech at hush.ai. And, uh, you know, I'll address whatever you're interested in addressing. This has been Brian Sovereign. Thanks for listening to Sovereign Tech. This has been Sovereign Tech. Visit us at sovereigntech.tumblr.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N tech dot T-U-M-B-L-R dot com. There you can connect with us, see more of what you've heard on today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is open source. We encourage you to share. Later, nerds.